Gwynni Cora yn gedal chias ffyrcyn ffolchyr o filiag o oras yn ogdron, agos ohos a le ar ymhyn, agos am y fan Caelis Aifin, tysgu wyl mwydig ffolchyr o eitsyn ato e gobar yr sonnys i ochona is derylis yn aynas. Sabine and I are so pleased that we are welcoming this afternoon people who are working for peace and for an end to violence and for reconciliation. I'm very happy, as Maruk as President of Ireland, to welcome the United Nations Group of Friends of Peace Processes, which was co-founded in 2018 by Ireland and Afghanistan, and includes today permanent representatives from Afghanistan, Bulgaria, Colombia, Jordan, Libya, Madagascar, Mozambique, Papua New Guinea, Somalia, Sri Lanka, Timor-Leste and Vietnam. I think... All of those countries that I have listed in you as permanent representatives at the United Nations are engaged in what is, I think, fundamentally the core purpose of the United Nations, that of conflict resolution and reconciliation. And I think the work you, in which you participate across the globe is a time in which we never needed more to be engaged and give unequivocal support to multilateralism so that we may achieve an enduring, peaceful and fulfilling balance between the needs of peoples, sustainable economy and a responsible care for ecological capacity. I know you may be tired after your very long journey, many of you, but you have come to Ireland to discuss areas of common interest in relation to achievement of these aims that you share. I very much, despite all the circumstances with which one is confronted every day, share with you, I believe, a belief that a peaceful and harmonious world is something that is possible, something that we must all strive tirelessly to achieve and to sustain. Uh, we ourselves, on the island of Ireland, are living through the experience of establishing, supporting and sustaining a peace process. And it is that experience and the Irish government's commitment and pursuit of peace on the island of Ireland that what encourages us, a very Irish thing, uh, to share our experience with other member states, other members of the United Nations who are in pursuit of international peace and internal security. And I'm sure that the sharing of yours and our experience uh, will yield discussions that are important and fru a fruitful discussion during your visit. We're not living in times, uh, we're not living, I think, in times when the discourse of peace uh, prevails among the most powerful. I think it's very important morally that we acknowledge that, but also that we let it be known that it is something that distresses our people. And that is why you, advocates of peace and conflict reconciliation, are so important. I'm sure as well uh, you share with me uh, concern that we are losing the discourse of peace. As participants in humanitarian action, you must feel how morally outrageous it is that given our boundless capacity for creativity and innovation, that the fruits of science and technology are being turned with ever-increasing intensity, not to the promotion and preservation of peace, but to the engendering of fear and to the pursuit and prosecution of war. I think that this is incredible because, of course, there is also a great exercise in bad faith involved. Some of those countries who speak 
The words of peace are those who are in fact seeking a more prominent peace and exporting of our arms to some of the most vulnerable parts of the world. The root causes of conflict are always complex. They may be dispaced on remembered dispossessions, ethnicities of difference, absolutist assertions of different faith systems. But wherever they're identified and are not not addressed, they they never remain fixed. They feed on new circumstances, some of which are created by our insatiability and our recklessness. Indeed, often old, temporarily resolved conflicts are resolved and resumed in new dangerous circumstances of the present. At the moment we face a threat to peace, sourced, I might suggest, in the threat to our very existence itself. We are living through an existential crisis that flows from three intersecting crises. Climate change resulting from unsustainable, deeply unequal consumption that coexists with the failure to meet the basic sufficiency needs of humanity. A loss of trust in institutions that is reflected in a loss of cohesion at the level of society and delivered and experienced in the multifarious forms of alienation at personal level. The threat of violence expresses itself not only between borders but also within borders. For example, expressing itself through violence against women, children, environment, nature. It is facilitated by an institutional ennui of a sense of failure, incapacity, moral lassitude that is now somehow as accepted as inevitable as if this world cannot be changed. An incapacity, I think, that peacemakers are ever more important as they are forced to engage not only with change but with the consequence of far too much indifference to these interacting crises. I think that any balanced reading of contemporary history suggests that the outbreak and recurrence of conflict and security threats can only be prevented by addressing the root causes which are often sourced in failure or at best reluctance to address the structural sources of inequality and the means by which they facilitate the spread of hateful extremist rhetoric for political gain. Running through what I have to say this afternoon is something that I have decided needs further emphasis in my own speeches, and that is how we cannot go on to ignore the consequences of the existing global economic order that we have, as if we can achieve peace, reconciliation, and all that we hope for, as if the global economy can be left intact as it is. I think counteracting an exploitive populism demands political imagination and determination, but most of all, moral courage. We cannot, for example, I suggest, lose the opportunities of the present or the possibilities of the future by failing to transact old issues of division that were sown in the past and that are the prospective sources of contemporary or future hate. I think as well the tasks of peace building in which you are involved needs to be supported by independent research and proper financial allocations 
It demands that we become aware as to how the debate and our path forward too can be frustrated, co-opted through influence or threat, even determined by those with vested interest in the arms race, who are, after all, the proximate beneficiaries of escalated conflict. We cannot suggest, for example, that we can have normal diplomacy while ignoring the confrontation of those who are, in fact, the most serious lobbyists, be it in terms of the arms race or be it in terms of the fossil fuel industries. This brings to mind a number of first-order questions upon which those of us who believe in peacemaking as opposed to warmongering need to reflect. How have we come to be losing the discourse of peace to the discourse of fear? How has the international security industry come to occupy a space that should be filled by those seeking to fulfil the needs of sufficiency in food, shelter, education and cooperation? How have we come to accept the allocation of a minor residual role for ecology, society and even peace? As somebody in the social sciences myself, I've been extraordinarily struck by how in fact actually we use subjects like anthropology as a tool of colonisation. But after decolonisation, such a tool is not used at all now to recognise that there is a diversity of experiences on our planet that are culturally informed and which deserve respect. And how have we come to accept as a hegemonic influence on our lives, on our very existence, such a narrow, limited version of global economy, a chronically imbalanced approach that has served us so badly and with such destructive consequences. We are now living through a financialized form of globalization where capital is not sourcing a productivity or production, but is commodified as a speculative commodity to purpose for the purpose, if you like, something abstract, an asset for financial market transaction. Our work is affected by, for example, in 1990, there were a 1,000 funds which operated with $25 billion. By 2004, 14 years later, there were 8,000 funds with 1,000 billion. And 10 years ago, in 2008, 2.5, 2.7 trillion. In fact, actually, the productive use of capital is roughly at about one-third of what it was in 2007. This means that we have handed over, we live in critically for the most part in a financialized global economy that has these features and that stands as a major obstacle in relation to that which we may wish to achieve in other dimensions of our multilateral existence. The economy is not embedded. It is not even embedded, I suggest, in that <coughs> rhetoric, that discourse that we had of human rights. I had the pleasure to address an international conference here in Dublin that marked the 70th anniversary of the Geneva Conventions, the cornerstone of which the cornerstones as they are of modern international humanitarian law, recognised as the most important treaties governing the protection of people in armed conflicts. Those conventions were responsible in their earliest forms for the establishment of a humanitarian agency that we know today as the International Red Cross. And there remain solid foundations on which to establish new initiatives to deal with in current circumstances. 
But what ties together those conventions, indeed the humanitarian work in which all of you are involved, is the assertion of a belief in the irreducible dignity for which humanity stands, and that such dignity is capable of being vindicated. The conventions reflect a desire of societies to protect the innocent, advocate for justice, and live in accordance with established codes of conduct. The United Nations cannot do this if it does not address the consequences, I said, of the fact, as I mentioned, that parallel to it is a form of global economy that works against it, that contradicts it through its development banks, the World Banks, the International Monetary Fund. In other words, in many cases, we live now in a society, global society, that is controlled by debt. We are, if we are in the verge of a climate catastrophe, we're also living through a debt catastrophe. This principle I'm very much interested in Ireland very often at how it affects ordinary language. We would say, for example, people aren't able to buy a house. They would say, really, they aren't able to afford a mortgage. They're not able to get into debt. It is in this way, this consciousness of the globalised debt economy has in fact just sunk into consciousness in such a dangerous way. The principle of belief, as I mentioned, of the Geneva Conventions in essence of humanity, its fundamentals in terms of sustenance, vulnerability and capacity, I think these are so important. It is time to defend the United Nations and defend these principles. And thanks to humanitarian actions like the work in which you're heavily involved, millions of civilians have lived safer and more harmonious lives. And I do appreciate so many of the countries where, in fact, actually what you have to try to bring to the dialogue and the negotiations is the great gift of being able to listen, the listening techniques that are so important. But I think it is depressing for us all, but sadly necessary to note, that across the globe the number of people in crisis and displacement is at the highest level record in recorded times. Violent conflicts today, they're likely to have more actors, demonstrate more complexity, and they last longer now, now it's between seven and nine years. In last year, over just about 15 million people 27,000 persons every day were forced to leave their homes as they fled from violence, conflict and disaster. These are newly displaced persons, half of whom are children, and 70.8 million people are now forcibly displaced, with four and five refugees living in countries neighbouring their country of origin. And I do believe, and in the message I sent to Geneva at the meeting on the funding of migration, was that it is possible to have imaginative responses to this migration challenge, if in fact we recognise recognize the, the, the possibilities that are there. But yet today, in terms of addressing the sources of this, 10% of development assistance, 10% is spent on peace-building and conflict, while military expenditure is soaring now and outstanding at almost $2 trillion globally. We're not free, any of us who are in the public world, to despair. We must work in this space for a, what is possible. And I suggest winning, if you like, acceptance for the need for a new eco-social embedded economy. A paradigm change is the greatest challenge facing us.
we must win that at a level of ideas first and then get it to be the taken-for-granted consciousness of our people. And the United Nations in all of this is so important. It must be reformed and strengthened. And this will probably come, this impetus of wanting the United Nations, which we must refer to more and more as our United Nations, will probably its best opportunities for assuming recovering, recovering, I say deliberately, a relevance in contemporary conditions, will come from smaller nations, rather than the powerful, who do not, after all, have much to lose, protected as they are from the most outrageous of their breaches of international law by the veto that they exercise in the Security Council. It is not just the young of the world who are appalled either... <coughs> by the cynicism that is sometimes expressed by those who say, and I was at my age, I'm able to, to say, that I remember the excitement of all of those big countries, post-colonized countries, travelling to the General Assembly and the excitement it caused for their people, strong supporters of the United Nations. But isn't the cynicism that you can in fact have normative theory at the General Assembly, but that it is at the Security Council that real business gets done? And there is an international media that supports such a cynical view. But if that is the case, and if such a cynicism prevails and loss of support for the United Nations happens among the different publics of the world, well then there is nothing left except the promise of further violence. I think the suggestion that the General Assembly constitutes some kind of pent-up moral steam of normative concern that can be released by the spokespersons of the publics of the world, described as rhetoric, these publics of the world and all their vulnerabilities, to which then, and then that nothing that is expressed must be allowed to slow the strut of the interests of the powerful and wielders of military and trade power, at the Security Council itself. Such a suggestion is an amoral suggestion. People will speak about it being amoral for a while, but then I think myself the revulsion to it will take a stronger form. It is accepted uncritically by too many, and it is one of the reasons why we are losing the young in terms of their support for decision-making and decision-taking institutions. There is an argument, I think, that must be one. If we are to strive genuinely to build a culture of peace, it is essential that the fruits of new science and technology are turned to the promotion and safeguarding of peace, rather than facilitating war with its appalling personal and social consequences. And how valuable it would be for the fruits of new science and technology be able to be transmitted to the continents of the young, such as Africa. As we wrestle with these interlinked challenges in the application of science, changes in climate or unsustainable economy, deeply unequal society, we must do more to support and invest in interlinked solutions of peace. I think we must recover suppressed instincts for justice, peace, conflict resolution, that are buried under the weight of colonisation and cultural domination. Now is the time for us to reassert our belief in and support for justice, human rights and development within a diversity of cultural models. Isn't it extraordinary to think, for example, that many people believe that there were no notions of justice or equity or care or compassion in those cultural systems of the world before what is called the European Enlightenment. These, these instincts were suppressed 
and they can be recovered. And these continents to which I refer are rich in what is to be recovered culturally and which can be made consistent with what we can share universally. For we must strive to build a culture of peace. It isn't an easy task in today's geopolitical landscape, as I have described it, where the hubris of the most militarily powerful is extended into intertwined areas of trade. Now we see trade as a weapon of conflict, communications, distortion of communications. And as I said, the financialization of a global economy that is now structured, as I said, on test rather than anything real. That rewards of speculative capital for the few, while it refuses to accord rights to workers and marginalises or excludes migrants, migrants who are merely seeking the sufficiency of life. How rarely we hear that last year migrants supplied 12% of the gross domestic product of the world. Migrants who are seeking merely the sufficiency of life and are now in new circumstances, being forced into involuntary migration due to conflict sorted in the consequences of climate change. I think there is something else because the citizens of our world differ in how they state their needs. There is not some single insatiable instinct that is a version of human nature in which somehow or another must be inflicted or accommodated by the in the world. Many victims of contemporary conflicts, the great injustice of being denied those most basic of human needs, shelter, security and a sense of belonging is a daily lived reality. And those who arrive on foreign shores fleeing war and persecution are so often in increasing numbers, those whose homes and lands are illegally taken from them, or those who have been living under the constant threat and fear of persecution or discrimination. There are also those who have been rendered voiceless, powerless, have had their lives ruptured, their dignity rejected, their autonomy confiscated, as Hannah Arendt might put it. From the most, I think, for, for a pernicious form of global debt economy, we can, I think, in some or another, embrace, I think, uh, an alternative. When considering how to mobilise, for example, this response to migration, the funding required to address, should we not be looking with urgency at new initiatives of global funding that can address new sources, including a capital that is now seeking investment? that is in fact destroying capitalism itself by companies purchasing their own shares and giving you an inflated preparation, if you like, for the next technological collapse. Capital that is now no productive yield and that is being diverted, as I've said, into inflation of share values by companies, as I've described, in the west coast of the United States, for example. But also, I think, this global collapse which will come from such actions, from non-collateralized technology joints, is something that can be avoided. Such funding can find their way to a green economy fund. A similar circumstance prevails in relation to sources and flows of credit. Sources of credit and capital, currently not being utilized, could be made available to create a green economy fund just transition. Sustainable development, solutions to migration, issues in a way that is accountable, transparent, efficient and consistent with the UN Charter. How consistent is it with the, with, with the United Nations Charter for leaders, those in leadership roles in the, United, in the European Union to be saying that they are defending Westernism? 
It is a suggestion of in many, many ways that is as pernicious as the oldest forms of imperial tendency. But capital can fund a longer-term real yield. Capital can be changed to provide a long-term yield for all of the funds I have described, integrating a response to inter interacting crises, including the crisis created by new forms of concentration of wealth and dead capital. And it makes sense. The United Nations realised a circumstance such as this when it responded in the 1940s to a global financial crisis. Today we seem unable to act. The United Nations is being undermined, underfunded and mocked as a global institution. Yet it is the depository of our multilateral agreements and responsibilities. I repeat again, it is all we have. So we must now work together for a form of discourse that I think that rejects violence, but also violence of an institutional, structural kind, as well as personal. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that great document which belongs to us all, has affirmed, I quote, the recognition of the inherent dignity of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family, is the foundation of freedom, justice and peace in the world. What an inspiring piece of language that must not be reduced to empty rhetoric. And if we are to create such a world as I've described, a world where all our fellow citizens can live in peace, security, safety, respect and dignity, we must reject not only all forms of violence, but envision an inclusive, sustainable, diverse world, one that can be shared equally by all citizens in all their wonderful diversity. This is the unfinished work, for example, I suggest of decolonisation. And critically, it will require, for example, in the case of Africa, giving to, to, in order to enable Africans to build a sustainable future for their continent. Carlos Lopez, for example, has described this as in his book Africa in Transition. It means giving agency to Africans. You who work, all of you, in non-violent ways to seek resolutions to conflict through dialogue, negotiation and peaceful agitation and protests, are more than sowing seeds, you're demonstrating the great power of positive action in effecting real and lasting change, and doing so with compassion, empathy and wisdom. We on the island of Ireland have witnessed what can be achieved by willingness to engage in discourse, and how it facilitates makes possible, works towards achieving a common goal. However, this invaluable work or intervention and rapid humanitarian response should never be used as an alternative for avoiding, used as a, a means of avoiding the deep structural institutional changes we are required to make. Humanitarian acts must not be abused by their being cited as alternatives to the call for structural change. The, neglected, the neglect of structural change promises catastrophe, and it promises that within decades. Conflict resolution processes require courage and patience and hope the great gift of being able to listen. And all peace processes are just that. They're processes which require long-term sustained political engagement. It is rare that the sources of a conflict are ever fully addressed in one generation. Therefore, those committed to peace must recognise that we are all embarking on a potentially lifelong, even intergenerational journey. And set against this reality, it is vital that the principle and objectives of any agreement are flexible to new challenges, 
acting as the foundation of the framework by which peace and reconciliation for all people are achieved. In our own case in Ireland, the Belfast Good Friday Agreement was a form of endpoint, but really it was a beginning, the beginning of a process to build a peaceful society that is far from finished. And over 20 years, the difficult process of reconciliation continues. Northern Ireland, yes, is a much more peaceful society perhaps today, but it is not entirely healed. Nor have I to say myself, can we regard it as anything near finished if our children cannot be educated together? Conflict resolution to be successful must be more than a means for demonstrating political resolve. It must be a meaningful, inclusive tool for the attainment of peace, requiring parties to accommodate, collaborate and compromise putting yourself in the shoes of the other. Effectiveness is straightened. The evidence is overwhelming when there is increased participation of women. We need to listen more to those women involved in conflict resolution to allow us to realise positive change, indeed particularly post-conflict reconstruction. In the past, the neglect of women's contribution to post-conflict adjustment was a significant if avoidable loss, and it often resulted in suboptimal outcomes. Important too in this debate is that we fully recognise how responding to and addressing conflict and violence demands the utilisation of the widest possible range of tools and instruments, as I've mentioned, the capacity to listen, from conflict prevention to mediation to humanitarian assistance to development and cooperation. Security, be it in its hardware, or its software or its rhetoric, is thus only one element of such an operation. Many societies remain trapped in orbit around a body of conflict, fear and suffering. You, the representatives of so many peoples who have played a a role in resolving conflict and achieving reconciliation, embody so much of hope that the cycle can be broken and that a new paradigm of peace can be created as something that is not predicated on any temporary cessation of violence. For it would be a very serious mistake to see conflict resolution work as merely reactive. The world that is possible as the alternative is one of joy and fulfilment experienced at personal and collective levels, and it's important to stress the invitation to that world of collective healing. Our world can orbit a new sun of fulfilment, equality and prosperity. Yes, we can bask in sustainable peace, free from the scourge of war, in a future where the principles of the United Nations Charter are adhered to, and where the world is transformed, reimagined, as envisaged by the Sustainable Development Goals. That requires transcending the lesser version of life to which a wild market theory of deregulation and irresponsibility has created. Sustained by violence, facing up to a realisation of our present experience of how we're living our lives. We are, I think I quote regularly, Professor Hartmut Rose's new book, Resonance, when he describes about we're living through a catastrophe of resonance. And I think a a world that eschews violence requires facilitating the transformative appropriation of every dimension of the world. How we are to exist, the relationships between ourselves and others and nature, with the world itself. 
how we may be transformed from consuming the world to resonating with it, to taking it into us in a different way. And I agree with Professor Rose's argument that such a loss of human responsibility has been a factor too in the democratic crisis in which we find ourselves. If we are to establish horizontal or axes of resonance, such an achievement will enable us to create new institutions that might serve better as eco-social versions of responsible embedded global economy. In this concept, for example, it is incredibly important that we do see that how important as a bulwark of democratic communications order is. Strong political institutionalised guaranteed public service broadcasting, the protection of civic meeting places. These are incredibly important, not enabling us only to transform our world, but to recreate the world, to give citizens self-efficacy, but a self-efficacy that is in fact expressed through the other, as an important instrument with which society in the public space can become a sphere of resonance for citizens. I want to finish by expressing support for all that Secretary-General Gutierrez is seeking to do in the difficult circumstances in which he finds himself. When he refers to the undeniable links between development and security, between human rights abuses and conflict, the recognition that we need transformative, long-term, holistic solutions. But we must assist him by speaking plainly and clearly of our commitment to pursuing a paradigm that will enable such balance between an eco-social form of global economy that is within responsible limits. We need to develop and sustain institutions capable of channeling our collective will in that regard to provide the transformative solutions to conflict resolution. The United Nations, the European Union, the African Union, the World Bank and other bodies are indispensable in addressing shared challenges and implementing what might become agreed solutions. But so often these are just simply silos echoing, if you like, rather limited suggestive conversations. I say this, I realise that security from hunger and transmissible disease, the provision of housing, health, education, those most human and important forms of security, how often are they now in the definition of security? Is it not more frequent to hear security defined exclusively militarily? I think eliminating global poverty, offering fair trade, responsible eco-social economics, these are the contributions to security that have the capacity to inspire and endure. And Ireland is deeply committed to the multilateral order. It is the reason why Ireland is seeking a membership of the Security Council. Because the challenges we face, climate change, displacement, poverty eradication, conflict resolution, they're global in nature, but it's only by cooperating that we can hope to address these successfully and meaningfully. And we may not take it, I'm afraid, and this is where works of diplomacy are so important. The commitment to multilateralism cannot be taken as a given. Several states, including some of the most powerful actors, globally, publicly and shamefully, are repudiating the multilateral order, pursuing neo-nationalist agendas. And this attitude, regrettable as it is myopic, displays a dangerous ignorance of history. It erodes respect for international standards and laws, including the Geneva Conventions themselves. 
It is important that we say as a global community that violations of international law are never acceptable. That violations of international law are only not acceptable, but that in fact international law itself is a founding principle of everything we do together. Countries with smaller populations on the Security Council will need to have courage to resist the intimidation, intimidation of those who are abusing power, be it in trade, technology, diplomacy or threatened exclusions. But they will have the gratitude of the world, in my view, and those, for example, who may have been able to live past a point of catastrophe. An additional challenge we face is the change in the nature and form of conflict and war. Conflicts have become more protracted, more urban, <coughs> more fragmented, all of which creates significant challenges for humanitarian actors. Now, I think the average length of a humanitarian crisis, as you know better than me, is now over nine years, according to the United Nations, an increase from an average length of 5.2 years in 2014. We must make conflict prevention and resolution a priority for the United Nations. That means changing the United Nations, strengthening it, not talking endlessly of reform in bad faith, which can too often be a subtext for those wishing to, wishing to weaken the United Nations' capacity to act. And to create the conditions for all of this, we must make conflict prevention and resolution a priority in our own societies. We have the capacity and the knowledge for conflict prevention, resolution, reconciliation and recovery. And there is a different future to be attained. But I have to ask, do we have the resolve? We must allow authentic voices to be heard, and not just the voices of those who hold formal power. The United Nations must actively engage in every member state with its citizens. We must get used to speaking the phrase, our United Nations. And may I conclude then, by Gwim in English, may I say, May I conclude by thanking all of you here today for all that you have done in the cause of building a better and most peaceful world. May I wish you well in your conversations together. May you always have hope and strength. May I also assure you that while Ireland may be a physically small island in the periphery of Europe, our outlook is global. Our tradition of participation in peacekeeping is ever strengthened and our conflict attempts at conflict resolution we are anxious to share because of our opposition to violence wherever it occurs and our support for the multilateral order that can in fact deliver us the responsible existence on this shared vulnerable planet that we want. It demonstrates how we can be a force for peace, stability and reconciliation. And should we be successful, for example, in memberships of the Security Council, it is on these principles and values that we wish to be called to account. Thank you.